0: To Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9. If you're wondering where the gospel of Mark is, it's in your New Testament, second half of your Bible. Mark is the second book in the New Testament. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9 this morning. If you have a friend who doesn't have a Bible, would you mind sharing your Bible with that person? If they're having a tough time trying to find that passage, would you help them go to Mark chapter 9? And since we believe that God's Word is powerful, I'm going to ask you to do this with me. I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to read the Word of God together this morning. And if you don't have it in front of you in your hand, you can read it off the screen. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9 verses 14 to 24. Would you help me read this out loud in a big loud voice together right now? It says, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. Help me overcome my unbelief. See, today we're starting a brand new series here at Thrive. It is called Overcome My Unbelief. And it is based on that very verse we just read, where this father who has this boy who's going through this incredible struggle, he says to Jesus, I do believe. Help me overcome my belief. The reason why we call this series Overcome My Unbelief is because in this series, over the next seven weeks, we're looking at some of the biggest questions that people have about the Christian faith. In some cases, they may be some of the biggest criticisms or the biggest objections people have to the Christian faith. Maybe there are questions that you've had. Maybe there are questions that your friends have. You're not really sure how to answer them. I think the series is going to be really helpful for you in that case. And so since we all have questions, could you tell the person on your right and your left before you take your seats, give them a high five and say, we all got questions, and I'm glad you're here. We all got questions, and I'm glad you're here. Please have your seats. We all got questions, and I'm glad you're here. See, I I don't know about you, but when I read verse 24 of Mark chapter 9, and there's this man who's struggling in his faith, and he says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. You know, for me, I, I see someone who's got doubts, and he's got his beliefs. It's kind of there's this wrestling match between what he believes and what he's doubting about. And he says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. He's got questions that he's trying to overcome. And if that's you today, then I think you're gonna really benefit from not just today's message, but from the messages over the next seven weeks that we're gonna be looking at together as we explore seven of the biggest questions people have about the Christian faith. And I hope you don't just come to our Sunday services and listen to the message, but I hope you'll actually go to our small groups and you can sign up for one at mythrob.info and there you can interact with other people on some of the questions that we're talking about because, because God never made us to do life alone. I believe he made us do it in community with others. If you believe that, say amen. If you wonder what amen means, something means I agree. By the way, do I have a proactive church here in this place this morning? I said, do I have a proactive pl- a church in this place this morning? Awesome, awesome. Well, today we're doing a series called Overcome My Unbelief. And given the nature of the stuff we're talking about, it's not one of the ones where, for example, today we're talking about the, the relationship between faith and science. And is faith and science, are they compatible with one another? And this is not the type of series where you're going to walk out going, faith and, uh, faith and science are compatible, rah, yeah. You know, it, it's, it's not one of those rah-rah kind of messages, but it's one of those that makes you think. It's one of those that make you go, hmm. Okay, yes, that's important for me, especially if you have these questions, especially if you have people in your life who have these questions. These are so incredibly important questions to be asking, and so I'm excited to go into this with you. The fact is this, you know, i just give you some background. I've been going to church since I was in the womb. My mom and my dad, they met in church. My dad was the choir conductor of the, the church choir. My, my mom was a really good pianist, and so she was the church choir pianist. One day they got together, they made beautiful music together, and I was the result of that beautiful music, all right, if you catch my drift. you don't understand that, ask your neighbor to explain that to you later on. Uh, but I've been going to church from the womb, and I remember going to church, and for so many years thinking to myself, this is my parents' thing, this is not my thing. And, you know, to make a very long story short, when I was 19 years old, I began to question all the things that I'd been learning in church. All these things that I'd been, uh, you know, I'd grown up hearing about, you know, about, you know, how do I know there's a God? When someone says that God is speaking to them, how do I know that God is really speaking to them? The fact is, this is I felt that at that time in my life, whenever said, whenever someone said that God was said this or God was doing this or God is this way, I always felt like I could put a human being behind that statement and go, actually, it's a human being who's doing that. How do I know the Bible is real or is at least trustworthy? You know, how do I know that there's a God who is so loving when there's so much stuff in the world that doesn't make sense? And and I had all these questions. And it was one of those things where, because of those questions, it started to drive me into investigating from the ground up issues like the existence of God, issues like different religions and, and why different religions say certain things, and, and are, they, are they all the same, or is, is, is Christianity really unique? I started looking at philosophy and science and all these things, and this is what I found, is that the more I investigated my questions, the deeper I dove, the more I saw that there were good, sensible reasons to believe in the existence of God and to believe that Christianity offers a rational, compelling way to live life and to look at the world. And, And I'm here to let you know that if you're someone here with questions today, it's okay to have questions. See, don't believe the myth that when it comes to faith, especially Christian faith, that there's no room for questions. You just need to blindly believe everything you hear. You can't question anything, no room for doubt at all. One of the things I love about Jesus is this. You'll find this, is that when it comes to people who already should know better, with when it comes to their faith, you know, for example with his disciples, Jesus can be a little bit tough with them. Go, you unbelieving generation. Come on, what's up with you? But when it comes to people with honest questions, like the Samaritan woman in John 4 who never read a Bible before, or Nicodemus who's a Pharisee, a religious leader, he he's been studying scripture all his life, but he has some real questions cuz he doesn't get it quite yet. He and you know, this you know, he, Jesus would would approach these people not with a get away from me unbeliever. He would come at them with gentleness and he would help them with their questions. And so I'm here to let you know, if you're like that too, if you've got questions today, this is a safe place for you. Turn to your neighbor and say, your questions are safe with me. Your questions are safe with me. If you're here and you're new to Thrive, a big warm welcome to you. If you are someone who is new to Christianity, you're just exploring it. You don't consider yourself a Christian. In fact, you're far from it. You just feel like, you know what, I'm just I'm just here to, you know, to, 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 to check it out, to just explore a little bit. So glad that you're here. And I hope that you're going to find that Thrive is a place where you can come and safely investigate your questions with other people without feeling like you're being judged in any kind of way. I hope that's really the case for every single person here. If you've been a Christian for a long time, but you have questions, can I tell you, don't be embarrassed to you have questions. The fact is, is, we all have questions. And you want to even see those questions not as a stumbling block, but as an opportunity to grow. And so with that in mind, you guys ready for this series called Overcome My Belief? You know, I might not be asking you to shout too much, given the nature of what we're talking about in in today's message. But I'm going to ask you to take some good notes today and be a pro after church because I believe that's how we learn. See, here's the question we're talking about in today's episode of Overcome My Belief. The question is, is Christian faith compatible with reason and science? Is Christian faith compatible with reason and science? See, when you look at pop culture, when you listen to what mainstream media tends to tell us, is that there's this dichotomy between... Faith and science is that science is about thinking, faith is about just believing you know, science is about facts, you know, faith is about feelings, you know, science is about carefully examining the evidence, faith is about blindly trusting in something that you can't see or prove, science is modern and sophisticated, faith is ancient and primitive and out of date, that's the stereotype that we often hear in pop culture, and it's basically this idea that, you know, if you are someone who really ascribes to science and reason, you're a smart person, if you're someone with faith, you're kind of a dumb person, and and see, and it's this idea that science and faith are mutually exclusive is that it's kind of either or either you stand on the side of science or you stand on the side of faith and in fact there's uh, an author called Richard Dawkins He's the author of The God Delusion, and, you know, he's a major player in what has become known as the New Atheist Movement. And in his books, he likens faith to a mental illness. He'll say, you know, if you have faith, you're sick. There's something wrong with you. Either you're ignorant or at best you're, at best, you're ignorant, at worst you're evil. If you have faith, you have religion, that's what he considers. You know, Karl Marx, he famously once said that religion is the opium of the masses. How do we respond? To statements like that. See, what what can Christians say in response to the stereotype of science and faith? Is Christian faith compatible with science and reason? Well, let me first, as we explore this question, give a definition for science and a definition for faith. These are not perfect definitions, but we'll work with them today. Here, you can write this down. What is science? See, science is acquiring knowledge of the natural world through testable explanations based on observation and experience often through what's called the scientific method. That's what science is. It's about acquiring knowledge about the national world, by, uh, natural world by, 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 by looking at hypotheses that you can test and observe and experience. And that, that's science. There's faith, on the other hand. What's faith? Here's one definition for faith. Faith is reaching a conclusion based on a combination of reason, intuition, and risk after you consider the evidence. See, I think that's a pretty good definition for faith. Faith isn't just, oh, I just believe, whatever, I don't care, no no, no reason at all, I just believe. No, it's actually reaching a conclusion after looking at evidence and using not just reason, but intuition and risk at the same time to get to where you are. See, is Christian faith compatible with reason and science? Today, I want to give you three reasons why the Christian faith is very compatible with reason and science. Why don't you write this first one down? Reason number one. In the Christian faith, reason and science are incredibly important tools in the search for truth. They're just not the only tools. See, Christians believe, at least thinking Christians believe, that science is, is incredibly important to the search for truth. And I believe that starts in Genesis chapter one, the very first page of the Bible, where God says to human beings, he says, fill the earth and subdue it. What does subdue mean? It means put it under control. And, and in order to subdue the earth, what that means is you need to understand it. You need to discover everything about it. You want to learn as much as you can about it. You want to investigate it so you have a good understanding of it, so you can be a good manager and a good steward of our planet. If you believe it, say amen. And that's why you have, for, for example, in 1 Kings, in the Old Testament, you have you know, King Solomon. And he's not just you know, making kingly decisions, but he's also engaging in biology. He's studying plant life. He's studying animal life. There's a place for science. You know, Matthew 22, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It's because God gave you a mind to for a reason, he, God gave you a mind so that you could understand the world and ultimately understand him that 's why Christians back in the middle ages they invented the idea of a university. As the formal institution. University was a Christian idea. You know, you know discovering the truth for, through reason and science, that was a Christian idea. Schools like Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Brown, all began as Christian institutions where people were intent on searching for truth as a God-given mandate as Christians. And for, for people today, Christians who say, "Yo, I don't need to get into all this intellectual stuff. You know, I, I believe what I believe in my heart and what I feel. I'm just going to sing my songs. I'm going to worry about all this intellectual stuff. If that's you, can I just caution you in a couple ways? If that's you. If, if, if that's you, can I tell you, is that if you don't engage in some of these questions that we're talking about in the series, what you're going to do is you're going to do a disservice to this world. You're going to do a disservice to the people around you, especially those who don't have anything to do with God right now, because what you're doing is you're simply reinforcing the stereotype that many skeptics of Christians have as being not really thinkers, just feelers. And we don't want that. Another thing is this, is if you kind of go, oh, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm not going to worry about all these issues we're talking about, these big questions. I don't know. I just believe. Then can I tell you this? I believe you're doing yourself a disservice as well. Because Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And if, and, and if you are loving God with your heart but not with your mind, there's something missing in your relationship with God. God made you to love him with your mind. If you believe that, say amen. But see, science is not the only tool available to us in our search for truth. See, Christians also believe that there are certain truths about the world that we might not be able to prove empirically or repeat in a laboratory, but that are true nonetheless. Really? You know, there's some people say, "Oh well, I'm not going to believe anything unless science proves it." Well, I'm going to put I'm going to put it to you today that you actually already probably believe a number of things that science cannot prove. Can I give you some examples? This is courtesy of William Lane Craig, who's a a Christian philosopher. He identifies five things that cannot be scientifically proven, but nonetheless, they are rational for us to accept as true, and we very much do. Number one, logical and mathematical truths. Can you prove logical and mathematical truths through science? No, you can't. Science assumes logic and math. It assumes they're true. And so if you try to prove science can, or if you try to use science to prove math and logic, that's just being really circular. You can't prove logic and math through science, but nonetheless, it is reasonable for us to believe that one plus one is two. See, number two is metaphysical truth. What does metaphysical mean? Metaphysical means, well, meta means beyond physical. Metaphysical, beyond physical. And so there are certain truths, certain statements that we would agree with, but that we can't prove scientifically. For example, if I say that there are other minds in this room other than my own, can I prove that scientifically? I cannot. But. Nonetheless, it's a reasonable thing to say. If I say, I believe the external world around me, you know, this podium, this amp, this chair, that these external things around me, that they are real, is that a reasonable thing to believe? Yes, it is, but can you prove it scientifically? No, you can't. You know, if it's something where, you know, if I said, you know, I believe the past, the past, you know, the past five minutes that, or or, or, or your past, my past, that this was not just something that an alien planted in me, you know, two seconds ago with the appearance that I have a past. That, is that rational? Of course that's rational. But can you prove that scientifically? No, you can't. You can't. See, there are a number of things that you cannot prove simply through science. Here's another one. Ethical beliefs. What you believe to be right and wrong. For example, what the Nazis did in exterminating Jews during the Holocaust, is that evil? Yes, that is evil, but can you prove that scientifically? No, you can't. See, these ethical judgments, it's not that, it's, it's not that, you know, it's one of those things where science can't prove it, but nonetheless, even though science can't prove it, we just believe deep down there was something wrong there. It's because there are certain truths that science can't prove, but nonetheless are rational to believe. Another one, aesthetic judgments. Things like, you know, what is beautiful? You know, what, what is not? These are not things that science can prove. Finally, science itself. Science can't prove science. Do you guys know that? Is that, for example, you take uh, Einstein's theory of, relativity, uh, theory of relativity, which hinges on this assumption about the speed of light. How if, this, if, if light is going from point A to B in one direction, it assumes it's a constant speed. But how do you know that? Can you prove that scientifically? You can't. And see, there are so many things that we believe that we can't prove scientifically, and yet... They are rational to believe to be true. And so when someone says, I'm not going to believe anything until science is going to prove it, if you, say, if you think that way, then you're actually misunderstanding the fact that you already believe a ton of things that science cannot prove. And for Christians, there's this recognition that science, as important as it is, is not the only tool to pursuing knowledge and truth. Now, some of you will be like, what about miracles, JB? See, aren't miracles scientifically impossible? And yet the Bible talks so much about miracles. What about that? Well, look at you know there's Time Magazine once asked Dr. Francis Collins. He's one of the world's leading geneticists and he's also a Christian. And they asked Dr. Collins, he said, "Dr. Collins, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is this essential argument to the Christian faith, right?" Right. But doesn't it, along with the virgin birth of Mary and all these lesser miracles, don't they fatally undermine the scientific method, which depends on natural laws being constant? Doesn't that just undermine science? And, and Dr. Collins, he says this, he says, you know what, if you're willing to answer yes to a God outside of nature, then there's nothing inconsistent with God on rare occasions choosing to invade the natural world in a way that appears miraculous. If God made the natural laws, then why could he not also violate them when he chooses to at a particularly significant moment for him to do so? And he would later on say this about faith and reason. He'd say this, is that faith is not the opposite of reason. Faith rests squarely upon reason, but with the added component of revelation. In other words, there are." are a ton of things that we believe that we can't prove scientifically. And so as important as science is, it's not enough on its own. And that's that leads us to point number two, reason number two. Science wasn't designed to answer all matters of truth. You know, some people they like to make this argument. They say, you know what? Science is making the belief in God more and more unnecessary more and more obsolete people used to use god as this way to explain all these things that they don't understand but as technology moves forward as science moves forward there's more and more stuff that we understand and less and less of a need to use god as that explanation a radio back in the middle ages people oh it's a miracle it's god but we know better than that but see here's the thing is that that you understand is that there's actually you would think that if that's the case that, you know, in academic circles all across universities that you find less and less people who believe in God called theists, more, and more people who are either atheists or, uh, you know, maybe agnostics and say, you know, I don't believe in God or, you know, I, I don't believe there is a God or I can't know if there's a God. Well, the, you're going to find this is that there is, hasn't been a decrease but seemingly a rise in theism the belief in God, both in scientific circles and, and and philosophical circles in different universities around North America. For example, uh, there's, a, there's a, a, a sociologist at Rice University called Elaine Eklund. And Elaine Eklund, in 2010, she did this study uh, that became a book called Science Versus Religion, What Scientists Really Think. And in the study, she actually surveys 1,700 scientists from top universities around North America, Princeton, UNC, and as well, she conducted about 275 in-person interviews among those she surveyed. And guess what she found? She found that 36% of university scientists believe in God. 36%. Often when I was going to UBC, I was given the impression that no one believed in God. You know, it's like, you know, it's like 1%, if that. But she's saying 36%. That's more than the number of atheists that, that, that don't believe in God. That's more than agnostics who say, oh, you know what? I, I'm not really sure. I don't know. I can't know. 36%. And, and what she found that when she was interviewing in person these different scientists who described themselves as atheists who said, there, I don't believe there is a God not any of them were nearly as convinced and passionate about their atheism as Richard Dawkins and the new atheists were. They're just like, you know what? I, 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 I don't even want to associate myself with those guys because they're, they're really kind of an embarrassment. They're, they're, they're going on the way extreme and I, I want to distance myself. In other words, there's this respect for theism in scientific circles that wasn't there before. In, 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 not just in scientific circles, in philosophy. There's a guy called Quentin Smith. And Quentin Smith, he is a philosopher professor in Michigan, and he's also an atheist. And in 2001, he wrote this article. It's, this, it, it's in a philosophy journal called Philo, and he wrote this article that talked about how before in the 1960s, you go to any university philosophy departments, it's all atheist professors. And he loved that he's an atheist himself. But then along came this guy in the 1960s called Alvin Plantinga, who is a Christian and who is also a philosopher. And, he's, and and he came up with some arguments for the belief in God that were the strongest arguments anyone had ever seen. And all of a sudden, people were like, oh my goodness, maybe theism, the belief in God, actually has an intellectual ground to stand on. And Alvin Plantinga is known in many circles today, both in Christian circles and non-Christian circles, as the greatest living philosopher right now. And, and see, what ended up happening was as a result, you know, Quentin Smith was noticing this trend that all of a sudden... When in 1960s, you could never find a non-Christian or, or you know you could never find a Christian or a theist philosophy professor. He's saying that now, look at like all these different philosophy departments in our our schools. Like he he says that he guesses about one third. Two, like one quarter to one third of philosophy professors in North America are theists who believe in God, most of them Orthodox Christians. And he writes this in this journal, and, and this is just kind of him complaining. He says, in philosophy, it became almost overnight academically respectable to argue for theism, making philosophy a favored field of entry for the most intelligent and talented theists entering academia today. God is not dead in academia. He returned to life. Now, you might be, well, so, so why when I go to UBC or I go to SFU or I go to whatever school I go to, why does it feel like there's so few people who believe in God? Especially among profs. And, and see, you know what? Dr. Eklund, the sociologist, Dr. Quentin Smith, the philosopher, they both came to the same conclusion. They actually believe that in a lot of academic circles, there are a lot of closet Christians. There are a lot of Christians who actually believe, scientists who believe in God, philosophers who believe in God, who are actually just not coming out and telling people that they believe in God because they don't want to commit academic suicide and and it's it's to me it's a reminder that you you know if you're a christian today don't be ashamed of your faith if you're someone who's in the workplace, doesn't have to be in academia. You don't have to be a professor. You might be working at a bank. You might be working in a restaurant. Don't be ashamed of your faith. In fact, when you let people know, and you don't have to do it in a really arrogant kind of way, but don't be ashamed of your faith. Because if you let people know, you can actually be an encouragement to someone who might ha- who might need to know that as well. But what's going on here? What's the pattern here? Is that very smart, very rational people in academia, in universities, are realizing that this world is far too complicated just for science. To explain. For example, Alan Rex Sandage, he's known as the greatest observational cosmologist in history. And this is what he says He says, It is my science that drove me to the conclusion that the world is much more complicated than can be explained by science. It's like he's saying, You know what? As a scientist, I'm trying to discover this world and I'm realizing my science can't explain it all. That's, that's because science was never designed to have an answer for every single thing. And so when people say, I don't believe in God, I just believe in science, they don't know what they're talking about. Because the fact is, science was never designed to explain every single thing. Now, what about evolution? See, evolution, you know that scientific theory postulated first by Charles Darwin, the idea that all living organisms come from one common ancestor and then through a million billions of years there's a process of mutation, natural selection that causes different, you know, countless different species to appear. And some people say, "Well, doesn't evolution explain God away?" Well, first of all, no it doesn't. Even if you believe in this theory of evolution, You can't just say, because there's evolution, there is no God. No, there's actually a thousand different steps between there's evolution to there is no God that you have to prove. But nonetheless, here's the thing. How should Christians view evolution? Does evolution contradict the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, the first couple chapters of the Bible? See, you're going to find this, is that uh, among Christians... You're going to find a wide range of perspectives. It's a really wide spectrum on how on different views of how evolution interacts with what we read in the Bible, Genesis one and two. See, there's some Christians who believe that Genesis one teaches pretty literally that God created the world in a period of six 24-hour periods called days, uh, and possibly just a thousand years ago, and thus they've got a real problem with any notion that the Earth is billion years billion years billions of years old. That species came through natural selection. So, so 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 there's that kind of view among some Christians. There's other Christians who focus on the gaps that they see in evolution, like, you know, how the fossil record has gaps, how there's something called the pre-Cambrian, uh, like, uh, the, the pre-Cambrian explosion, where, you know, natural selection is all about gradual change, slow change, but when you actually look at the fossil record, you'll find that when you, it's 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 slow, 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 but then all of a sudden, when you get to the pre-Cambrian era, it's like, boom! You have all these different species, you got all these different animals, and, and it's like, you don't see anything half horse, half, you know, half, ha- half bear, that kind of thing. You just see all these different things, and so they point to that, Uh, Some people, they point to how the human eye, for example, is way too complex for it just to rise through through evolution. They'll talk about there's no first cause. In other words, even if you buy into evolution, what what about the first cause? And so some people like to point at that and and think that that's maybe uh, a reason to not believe in evolution. There's other Christians who fully accept the conclusions that evolution makes about the natural world. And they believe simply that as Christians, we believe that God was over that process that God watched over and superintended that whole process. Who's right? Who's right? You know, I I want you to keep in mind that how much evolution and creation are compatible with one another depends on how you look at Genesis 1 and 2. And I'm here to tell you that, you know, when you are reading scripture, you ought to realize something, is that one of the most important things you want to do when you're reading the Bible is you want to try to understand what did that biblical author say or what was he trying to say to the audience at that time. And in some cases, um, you have to really look at the genre of the book that you're reading. For example, you look at, in the middle of your Bible, the Psalms, the Psalms are poetry. And because it's poetry, when you read it, you don't read it like a textbook. You read it knowing that there's metaphors in there, there's symbolism in there. It's poetry. When you go to the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, where Luke is giving this eyewitness account about the life of Jesus, you read that as history. And then when it comes to other things, though, there are the, the difficulty comes when you get to a book where you're not really sure, is this history or is this poetry or is this something else? And guess what? Genesis 1 and 2 tends to fall in that category. And that's why in, the, in, in about 400 AD, one of the most brilliant Christian theolo- theologians who ever lived, his name is Augustine, he warned people to say, hey, be careful in how you interpret Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, he says it this way. Uh, why don't you read it with me? He says, uh, in matters that are so obscure and far beyond our vision we may find in Holy Scripture passages which can be interpreted in very different ways without prejudice to the faith we have received. Stop right there. What is he saying? He's saying that with certain passages, and he's actually talking specifically about Genesis 1 and 2, there's a lot of different interpretations, and we are free to make these different interpretations. It doesn't affect the core of what we believe as Christians, about how God loves us. God sent Jesus Christ for us, died on the cross for our sins, He rose again. It doesn't affect those things, and so we're free to have our different opinions. And he says, in such cases, we should not rush in Headlong and so firmly take our stand on one side that if further progress in the search for truth justly undermines this position, we too fall with it. In other words, he's kinda saying this, and it's it's amazing that this is like sixteen hundred years ago, but it's almost like it's almost prophetic in a way. He was saying, Hey guys, if you have all these different theories on how the world came about, and you know, there's you know, maybe some evidence here and some evidence, don't be so care don't be so quick as a Christian to go, yeah. It was six. It was six days, 24 hours each. It was exactly that. That's how it went. Because if there's proof later on that that was not the case, you're like, uh oh. Do I mean? And or or if there's another theory out there about how the world came, but it's based on Limb Evans, they'll go, yeah, this is it, this is it, this is it, and this is how. And then and there's evidence of that 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 counters that, and you go, oh, I'm sinking. You know, he 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 wants you to avoid that. And so he says, you know, when you're interpreting Genesis 1 and 2, do so carefully. Don't be so quick to say, yeah, it's this scientific theory that's talking about. I believe this. I believe that the Bible is not a scientific textbook. It wasn't made to teach us primarily about science. It's a love letter from God to us. And so because of that, you want to be careful in how you interpret Genesis one and two. Keep one more thing in mind. Just as the Bible was not necessarily given to us as a scientific textbook, similarly, having us know that science was never intended to give us answers on everything. Remember that science focuses on the "how." Faith issues, religion, theology, they focus on the why. Science focuses on the physics of things, physical things. Faith, religion, theology focuses on the metaphysics, the beyond physics part, the why, the reason behind the how. And see, just because you believe in the theory of evolution, and some Christians, some brilliant Christians I know, authentically they're Christian and authentically they believe in the scientific theory of evolution, that you can do both. But see, this is the thing, is does that mean that there's no God? No, not at all. Just because you believe in evolution doesn't mean there is no God. Like I said, there's like a thousand steps between one place to the other that you have to prove. There's Stephen Jay Gould, who's a Harvard professor. He's actually considered to be the most famous, most celebrated evolutionary biologist and a paleontologist in history of science in his past probably 25 to 50 years. And he's passed on now, but he says something. He says, to say it for all of my colleagues and for the umpteenth millionth time, um, and he goes from college bull sessions to learn a treatise. He says, science simply cannot, by its legitimate methods, adjudicate the issue of God's possible superintendence of nature. What is he saying? He's saying science can't answer the problem or the question of is there a God watching over nature or not. Because science wasn't meant to answer it. It was meant to deal with physics, not metaphysics. And so he says we cannot, we neither affirm nor deny it. We simply can't comment on it as scientists. He's saying that, you know what, as scientists, we can only focus on the how. We can't really get into the why. It's not for us to do. And in other words, you can't use evolution to say there is no God. And on the the same token, you can't also use evolution to say there is one. It's because science was not meant to answer every single question. It's it's because science is only there to focus on a specific range of questions, but it's not everything. And so can you be a Christian and believe in the scientific theory of evolution? I think you can. And you, of course, can be an atheist and believe in the scientific theory of evolution. Now, just, just a, a little aside is that, you know what, like Science, a lot of scientists believe in the theory of evolution. A lot of people believe in the theory of evolution. A lot of Christians believe in the theory of evolution and as a scientific theory. But let me warn you about the dangers of believing in evolution not as a scientific theory but as a worldview kind of saying it's not just about how beings became uh, what they are how species came to be what they are but this whole almost this this whole attitude this approach to life about it's it's just you know you know we're just a product of randomness we're a product of natural selection it leads to some very dangerous implications that we'll get to in later on in the series and so just be careful with that you can believe as a christian in the scientific theory of evolution i don't think there's anything that's wrong with that but at the same time you got to be careful with the implications of what it means if you try to extend evolution to the rest of life that science was not intending to answer. Is this helpful in this place this morning? Again, this message is not one of those rah, rah. Is faith compatible science? Yay! No, it's, it's, one, it's, it's one of those where, huh, let's think about it. Let's talk about it. Reason number three, why I believe faith and science are compatible. Number three, we all use faith to one degree or another in our search for truth. See, how many of us know it's not just Christians who have faith. We all have faith. See, when an atheist says, there is no such thing as God, you know what that is? That's a faith proposition. When someone says, there is no such thing as miracles, you know what that is? That's a faith proposition. See, you're taking a leap. You can't necessarily scientifically prove it the whole way, but you're just taking a leap. And see, the thing is this. The question is not, do I have faith or not? The question is what do I place my faith in? We all have faith. And so the question is, what am I placing my faith in? Is it a good is it a good Reason? Is there good evidence for me to put my faith there? Is that the best version of the, the uh, of, uh, of, or is that the best explanation for the evidence that is in front of me? When I look at all the different possible explanations, is this the best, most reasonable explanation that there is? That's the question that we need to be asking. And see, with that in mind, let me end today with a story from Francis Collins. I quoted him earlier, but let me tell him a little bit more about him and his story. See, Dr. Francis S. Collins. Have a picture of him on the screen. He's one of the world's leading geneticists. He actually led what's called the Human Genome Project, which is where it was a, it was a, it was a massive international effort to map the human genome, like the, just the, the human DNA and they mapped it out. It's this incredible project. He led that for many, many years. He was the director of the National uh, Institutes of Health, continues to be involved there. Uh, And and this is what he said, is that, you know, he said that prior to him working on DNA, he was also a medical doctor, he was a physician. This is his story. Uh, This is what he writes uh, in a book called Belief. He says, raised with only superficial exposure to religious perspectives as a child, I became an agnostic, i.e. someone who's like, I, don't, I, don't, I can't know if there's a God. I became an agnostic. And then later, an atheist. I.e. I don't think there's a God. I don't believe there's a God. And he says, studying quantum mechanics in a PhD program at Yale, I saw no reason to believe in anything outside of the mathematical equations that described the behavior of matter and energy. I'd never heard any arguments that connected faith in God with reason. And so I assumed that believers must have to check their brains at the church door in order to enter. But my own scientific and humanitarian interest subsequently led me to pursue a different path, and I enrolled in medical school. There, the questions of life and death that, that had been purely hypothetical, became wrenchingly real. As I sat at the bedside of good, honorable people who were facing the end of their lives, and for whom faith in God was a source of peace when medicine had failed them, I tried to imagine myself in their position. And I had to admit, if I traded places with them, I would not be peaceful. I would be angry, I would be terrified. And though I'd previously assumed that any such comfort from faith was just a delusion, I had to confess that I really didn't understand why so many people around me, including my professors, were believers. I didn't know about Pascal's wager. Pascal was a French philosopher, and and who said that there is much more to be lost by denying God's existence than by accepting God's existence. But it began to dawn on me that I had ignored the seriousness of getting an answer to the God question. If there was any actual evidence to support belief, if faith really rested on a foundation in reason, then I'd better find out about it. Thus began a personal exploration in my mid-20s of the rational basis for faith. And then he goes on to explain how over the next several years, the next several years, he, he started to investigate the different reasons people believe in God, in, spe- in, in fact, the specific scientific evidence that point to the belief in god. See, science can't prove there is or is not a god, but there are clues from our use of science that can lead us and point us in that direction. And and he goes on to explain different pieces of that evidence. In fact, we're going to look at some of that evidence next week. And he goes on to make this conclusion. He said for myself, the arguments from the nature of the universe with cons- uh, uh, sorry, the the arguments from the nature of the universe and the existence of law led me with considerable initial resistance to a serious consideration of the possibility of a God who not only wound up the clock, but who also has an enduring interest in a relationship with humans. That's a really long way of saying that, you know what, I looked at all the evidence, and I realized, even though I was initially really resistant to the idea, I realized actually that there's a real pro- like possibility, even a probability, that there's a God out there who didn't just wind up the clock and, and let the universe go, but he's actually... Involved in the universe who actually cares for human beings and wants a relationship with them and in all honesty continues He says that discovery wasn't the answer I expected or desired, but it became more and more compelling and uh, Not just that but Francis came across a book by C.S. Lewis who's one of the great Christian writers of the past century Uh, the book was called mere Christianity, which is talking about some of the reasons why Christian faith is reasonable and He looked at the book and he was amazed by how logical it was, how brilliant it was. And he was just really touched by this idea that God not only exists, but that God loves you and me. And that he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. That when we were separate from God because of our own way of wanting to do our own thing, that God didn't divorce us, he didn't say, I give up on you, he didn't abandon us. Instead, he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins so that we could have a way back to him so that we could be forgiven of every sin. And not only did he die on the cross for our sins, but to show that Jesus was not any ordinary man, but that he had hold over sin and death, not the other way around, is that Jesus Christ on the third day rose again. And it was this gospel that really touched his heart. And he would end up deciding at the age of 27 years old, Francis Collins decide to open up his heart and trust Jesus Christ as a savior. He would end up also writing a book called The Language of God which kind of talks about his spiritual journey and also talks about, you know, this DNA that he was studying and how it, if he finds it actually points to the idea, the existence of a God. And Francis Collins, he, he ends by saying this. He says, um, I would just like to say that over more than a quarter century as a scientist and a believer, I'm still able to accept and embrace the possibility that there are answers that science isn't able to provide about the natural world the questions about why instead of the questions about how, I'm interested in the whys. And I find many of those answers in the spiritual realm. That in no way compromises my ability to think rigorously as a scientist. So to the question, is Christian faith compatible with reason and science? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Christian faith is so compatible with reason and science. In fact, you can't really have reason and science without faith. And so with that in mind, we're going to be looking next week at the evidence for God. Clues that God really exists. It's going to be so exciting. I hope you invite your friends to join. If, they have, if you've got friends who really kind of question the existence of God, this message next week is going to be for them. And you might be asking, so where do we go from here? Well, let me end by giving you three or four practical suggestions on where we go from here. Number one, based on this message, I hope you realize that Christian faith is compatible with reason and science. Is that it's not either or, they're not enemies, they go hand in hand. In fact, there's one author who compares faith and reason to like two wings on a bird. Is that you need faith and you need reason, you need faith and you need science, you need both of them if you wanna send up to where the truth is. And number two, have the humility to recognize that in almost every situation you face, you will have a built-in bias you will have this built-in faith position. Because we all see the world from a certain filter. And whether we want to admit it or not, we all do. But when we exercise some humility and we're being a bit more self-aware and say, yeah, I realize I've got a filter. Maybe it's a Christian filter. Maybe it's an agnostic filter. Maybe it's an atheist filter. That we all have that filter. If we can recognize that, that will help us to, c- to continue on in a productive way in the series called Overcome My Unbelief. Number three. Be willing as much as possible to suspend that bias when looking at the evidence. Is that as we look at the different pieces of evidence for God and for the Christian faith, I wanted you to, to hopefully, if you come from a background that's not so Christian, I hope you'll suspend your worldview for a moment and just look at the evidence. And, and you know, it's kind of like that, that father in Mark chapter 9, where he had all these questions, and he had this filter, and he didn't believe in miracles. He didn't believe that God could heal in supernatural ways, and he's just like, I, I, uh, I, I realize God's bias. Help me overcome my unbelief. What is that? He's saying, okay, let me suspend my judgment for even a moment, and let's look at the evidence. You're going to find this. There's two kinds of unbelief that you will have later on today, um, and maybe into this next series that we have. The first kind of unbelief is where it's this really close-minded, close-heartedness, where it's, I don't care what anyone says, I don't care what evidence people give me, I am not believing in God. I am not. I refuse to believe that the Christian faith is a valid way of looking at life. I refuse to believe it. If that's you, that kind of unbelief, no one can help you with it. Not even God can help you with it because God respects your choices. He's a gentleman. He respects you. He respects your freedom to choose. And so if that's your position, then nothing I say and nothing we do over the next seven weeks is going to help you in any way because you've already made your decision. But if your unbelief is not that type, but it's the second type, where you think to myself, okay, I've got my questions, I've even got my doubts, but I'm open. And I'm gonna try as much as I can, I know I can't probably do it completely 100%, but as much as I can, I'm gonna suspend my bias as much as I can to look at the evidence. If that's you, I think you're gonna find the next seven weeks to be an incredibly powerful time. And I believe that you're gonna find that this could have been one of the best things you've ever done. And so with that in mind, I encourage you, be willing as much as possible to suspend that bias when looking at the evidence. Finally, Number four, go where the evidence leads you. Realizing that some measure of faith will always be required. You will always need faith at the end of the day. doesn't matter what you choose. If you say, ah, there is, there is no God, that takes faith. If you say, there is a God, that takes faith. If you say, miracles can't be real, that takes faith. If you say, I believe in miracles, I believe in Jesus, that takes faith. It's not something where it's faith or nothing, it's faith in this or faith in that. The question is, what are you putting your faith in? We want to look at the evidence before we decide. Finally, here's a quote from Plato, uh, and he says, we must follow the argument wherever it leads. I believe that if you join us for the next six, seven weeks as we do this series called Overcome My Unbelief, and you do it with an open heart and open mind, I believe it's going to lead us to some really great places. And so with that in mind, can we give God a big hand here in this place together right now? I'm going to invite the band to come up. We're going to sing.